Underrated Huey Lewis and his song. Oh, wait, I was, wait, I'm supposed to be playing the Nick Victory? I don't know, don't do that. Oh, okay. Don't, 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 uh, I mean, are you taking a shot? Kind of, yeah. Uh, you guys should have won rally, that game. Uh, rally back in a game that Nick said no business being in. Uh, Cam Reddish hit a big three in the corner. Jim mm. and Brunson in the assist. Got to overtime uh, in a position and then broke down defensively on John Moran, even though you forced him left and he made a great play going left. And uh, Memphis wins. So, you know. Uh, Magic Legend line, Evan Forney had a Line, shot. by the way, bet down to three and a half. Nick's lost by three. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, happy uh, Thursday uh, to all and welcome. We're going to get to the Magic game uh, last night. Break it down possession by possession and grade each possession. Oh, I like it. That's all coming up in uh, just a little bit. Anyway, how you doing on this I'm Thursday? Great. Yeah, I'm good. really? Good. Yeah. yeah. Did you work out early today or no? No, I did a triple yesterday. Yeah, I went back for two, huh? I did. Well, I, t- I told you I didn't want to get docked the, the, the money. You high fiving people after the third ride, like, after- yo, guess who did number three? No, after the third ride, it was more like my legs just yeah. so hurt. Okay. All right, well, <laughs> but I, you. I, you know, what? I feel great. I feel good. And the weather's great. Great, great vibes. You know, we ride yeah. as a tribe. Okay, yeah. All right. Uh, sure. Yesterday afternoon, I was uh, getting a quick workout in. Mm-hmm. The original Total Recall is on. They're the only one that matters. And then a couple days ago, it's watching The Running Man, which you know I'm a huge fan of The Running mm-hmm, Man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, Have you yeah. read the book? No. No. You're not a King guy? Actually, it's a Richard no, Bachman. No, but... I, no, I'm aware of it, but no, I haven't read the book. Huh. But, a little bit uh, different. Yeah. The original Total Recall, not the... Remake. What's next? You're going to turn on the TV and it's Kindergarten Cop. I'm hoping Commando uh, is going to be on. But again, there's the classic Schwartz, and it happens like three, four times in every movie, where, you know, and he's got the hologram. Yes. You know? And he's talking to himself? Right. And and, and then they're shooting, and, and then it's not him, and then he comes back, and they think it's a hologram, right? And they just start shooting. So I believe, I believe he gets in... 40-plus kills in about nine seconds. Yeah, it's what he does, man. With everyone looking at him shooting, and he's standing in the middle, and he just takes down everybody. Yes! <laughs> I don't understand what you don't get. One guy you think would get lucky and get a shot. No! One guy. One guy. Well, Commando, he gets hit at one point because he's got to do the self-surgery. Yeah, but... Yeah, like 40 guys are shooting at him. He's like, no problem. And, and, and they're all gone. Actually, it's more I hope that Predator comes on and, and you watch that. This has been a, a, a pet peeve of mine since my kids were this age. Mm-hmm. My kids are now, what, 27 and 25? Mm-hmm. So yesterday I was uh, out running a couple of errands, and I'm waiting in line, and someone has what looks to be, not looks to be, it is, a small child, mm-hmm. infant. Mm-hmm. And... I, to, to this day, I still wonder what the rule is. When do we stop counting our children in months? And we shift to, you know, so, oh, wow. And how old is she? She's 19 months. Can we say a year and a half? No. Because you know my theory that we should just all stick to months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when you turn 40, how old are you? I'm 480 months old. <laughs> you know? Cannot wait to get to 500 months and everything. But for some reason, there's this cutoff, and 
I don't really remember what I did. I don't think I ever said my kids are 23 months old. You should have. Yeah. Oh, she's 19 months. And my first thought is, don't say anything, but just say a year and a half. Right? Year yeah. and a half. 19 months. I mean, I get the one month, two months, three months, six months. I get the year thing, but after that, I think you got to just go. You know? I thought you were going to tell me. 19 months. I thought you were going to tell me. No, you're, the child's a year and a half. What? You were at a grocery store and you saw an infant and they were buying uh, Deli by the Slice. Uh-uh. No. She's 19 months. She's a year and a half, man. It's okay. Uh, I'm okay with the Yankee loss. I mean, I'm not okay. I'm, I'm okay they lost. Yeah. I anticipated them losing to Verlander. Mm-hmm. The Yankees struck out 17 times last night. Um, in the game, Schmidt gets a huge double play. I kind of wondered why you brought him out. He gives up a couple of home runs, and yeah, we just we need to be up three two going back for Game Six. So okay. We got to win three in the next four. Well, then you know what, Mark? Got to get one tonight. Got to get one tonight. I mean, Verlander was great. He's a Hall of Famer. We talked about it yesterday. Uh, and I cannot, I cannot stress to you in a sports sense. I, I'm careful to use this word, but I won't use the H word. I'll just say I cannot stress how much I dislike Jose Altuve. Which is I, 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 I oh, I sports despise him. Seven so years much. ago, I loved him. You loved him. loved him, loved him. But now I, I cannot look at him any other way. And after every home run, he's out there celebrating. And oh, gosh. Just despise him. Uh, oh, wait, we have forgot to mention. And this. by the way, whatever Verlander's on, I I'm good with it. I mean, whatever. Is I, it, it, it? It come on. That's not that's not natural. Oh, it, it's not natural. He's not. I mean, hit, hitting 99 and 100 on you know your 103rd pitch when you're his age. It, but I I'm okay with it. Is it the, God knows what Stanton has in his body. Is it the Jake Arrieta? No, no, no. Oh, no, no. The, uh, no. He's a Hall of Famer, Verlander. Okay. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Because we agree that Jake Arrieta... Made a deal with the devil. Yeah. Yeah, no. Justin Verlander's a Hall of Fame pitcher. He was great last night. And some of their fans. God, just... What now? What are you knocking? Hey, Liz Truss. How about that? 44 days? 44 days? Mm-hmm. In that position over in the UK? Her's got a lot of free if, time now. If you're going to make some bold moves... <laughs> I mean, go all in, but man, she went all in, and uh, that that. Did. But but over there, there. I mean, Parliament politics, and you know that's how everything should be. So to them, all right, whatever. We'll get the next person in here. It's no big deal. Um, kind of a big deal. Randy Angolia is going to join us. Uh, he's headed up to Greenville today. Whoa! He's on the call for Saturday's UCF East Carolina game, and he did the UCF SMU game. We're going to talk a little bit about the Knights and some other college football news. Uh, with Rainey. Cam Mellers, weekly football visit with us of Pro Football Network. We look back at the week in college football, the big performances, as he always analyzes uh, preparing for the draft about players that stood out. And uh, Matt Stinchcomb is going to join us from the SEC Network and ESPNU. Uh, the College Football Hall of Famer will be on our count in a bowl time segment, the 11 o'clock hour. Have him talk about the SEC and Alabama and uh, Tennessee and what it all means. So he'll be on with us a little bit later in a history lesson uh, coming up on the program uh, today. We have a UCF night talk later tonight at Island Wing Company by UCF. Head coach Gus Malzahn will be there and scheduled to uh, join us in the program uh, today. Anthony Montalvo, the defensive lineman, and uh, Alec Holler 
the tight end. What are you doing? And me. Oh, you're engineering tonight? Yeah. Frank's son playing football? Yep. All right. We can come down and see Scott. I'll be there. If you want. So uh, I'll be an island wing company tonight by the campus of UCF. So that'll be be fun. Yeah. Help me figure out what Mark should dress up as for uh, Spooky Empire this weekend. Mark is not going to be around. You're going Sunday. We talked Mark about this. Mark is not going to be there Sunday. Well, I've been telling everyone. A football game on Sunday. I got you a booth to sign autographs. No, that's fine. I appreciate that, but not going to happen. Um, we will get to the Magic and Last Sight's performance in their loss to the Detroit Pistons, the debut of Paolo Boncaro, and uh, it's one game. Can't overreact, but we will a little bit uh, on some things. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll tackle that in a a little bit. By the way, the, um, before we, well, I'll, I'll do that a little bit later on. Never mind. I was going to do something now that I don't want to do. Anyway, everything else good? Everything's great. Yeah, yeah, oh, good. I ate your orange yesterday. How was it? Good. Okay. Yeah. A little post workout orange. Mm. Get that vitamin C going. Yeah. Should have had it before the workout, but had it after the workout. No, you didn't do what I did. What? Pop some claws after a workout. Did you eat the, uh, uh, what did I get you? Nerds? Nerds. Yeah. I've had some, yeah. Some? Yeah, you don't want to eat the whole thing and then you've got like an upset. Oh, by the way, did, oh, I, I know what's going to bring up. Did you see the story yesterday that select McDonald's are going to sell Krispy Kreme donuts? I didn't see that, no. Quick thought. Yeah. Yeah. You know me. I'm a test of this. Here. I'm more of a fan of the other donut place. Yeah. Have you had the adult Happy Meal yet? I got a, ha- I, funny enough, I did get a Happy Meal the other day, but I got the kids' Happy Meal because I want the Halloween, the Halloween buckets are back. Not a single person surprised by that, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you order on the app, then you don't feel as weird ordering it. But no, I haven't gotten an adult at Happy Meal. No, those toys look weird. And by the way, do all the <laughs> clickbait... Yes, if you're thinking it's an adult toy, it's not. What? Do the clickbait headline reporters looking specifically at you, CNBC, there's a difference between asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars on eBay for an adult Happy Meal toy or getting six figures for an adult Happy Meal toy. Because all the headlines are, the people are buying it for this much money. No, people are asking for six figures for these toys. But put your clickbait out what there. What toy is like the big thing? I don't, I, I don't know. But you got a, a Halloween. You know what I'm talking. You the buckets to get your candy. Yeah, they brought those back. So you're pretty fired up about that. Yes, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> what was the meal that you got? Uh, Cheeseburger or something? Hamburger. All right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Two orders of extra small fries. Two orders of extra small fries. Yeah. They can't just make it a small and combine it. Is that like what four fries in a bag? I mean, how much you get in an extra? It's small? like a honestly, it's like a shot amount of, of fries. There's an extra small. Yes, I think it's only available for kids meals. Extra small, huh? Yeah. All right. We come back. The Magic debut last night. Pablo Boncara's first regular season game. What to like and not to like about game one of the new season. We'll get to that next. Brought to you by a poor choice tap house, Mills 50 District. Join them 
coming up on Saturday for UCF. They got a big 20-foot screen. They're going to enjoy the UCF East Carolina game and uh, sample everything that makes that place so special. 50 cell four taps. Pour your own drink. Don't miss a second of the game. No waiting in a bartender. They got food trucks, beer pong, and cornhole. Learn more by logging on to poorchoicetaproom.com. Mills 50 District. It's Poor Choice Tap House. All right. Last night, uh, the Magic play their first game of the NBA season. And it's a little bit more hype because of Paolo Boncara, the number one overall pick. And they play Detroit Pistons. Kate Cunningham had been a number one pick. And just in general, this was a fun game because of the young talent on the floor. I said to Mike, if you take a look at the NBA as a whole right now, and with so many players that are either A, playing one year of college basketball, or now looking at other options, whether it's the G League and these elite teams or international um you're seeing so many guys in the nba that are 19 20 21 years old that you realize uh, the league's in good shape when it comes to stars in years to come um i do believe you can do two things in last night's game uh you can evaluate the game why the magic lost and then separate that from performance of palaban caro and others First off on Paolo, I'm a big believer in what you see is real. Uh, And not that it's an instant, you get it right, but I just think sometimes you could look at players and you just know there's something there. That that looks like something that's going to be really good. And I said to Mike on the bridge, I think in the history of the Magic, and I moved here May before the very first year of the Magic, so I've been here for every year. I thought there were four players that the Magic had drafted that when they took the court looked like they belonged in the NBA. They'd have to really grow into it. Like Nick Anderson was a fun player. He was the first Magic draft pick. And yet Nick still had to grow from the college body that he was into an NBA player. Um, Shaquille, that's obvious. Penny looked the part. He was thin, but he looked the part. He had the flash, the sizzle. He looked NBA uh, ready. I said Mike Miller because I thought I thought Mike was really a, a, a well-built college basketball player though, and he took the floor. Like, J.J. Redick looked like the college kid that shot the ball really well. Then when he stepped in the NBA court, and J.J. went on to have a great NBA career as a sharpshooter from the outside, but he still looked like the J.J. Redick and, and undersized. And to his credit, he developed to be an effective NBA player. But I thought Mike Miller's body uh, looked like that guy belonged to the NBA. And Dwight, obviously. And then there was Paolo. From the start of that game last night uh, to the end of the basketball game, He'd look like the best player on the floor. And Kate Cunningham's really good, and he's going to have a great career. Uh, but Paolo looked like the best player on the floor. He looked NBA-ready, uh, performed, uh, put up 27 points, had nine rebounds, had five assists, uh, was 11 of 18, and he looked like a guy that has it. And that's a good sign. As we talked about, what are the things that you hope the Magic have this year? It's to develop a face of the franchise and a core of not eight guys, but probably three guys that you feel like we're building around. And maybe we saw the three last night. Uh, Franz Wagner, I think, is set for a really big season. Last night, a slow start. 
uh, finished better with 20 points. And I thought Jalen Suggs played really well, considering where we were with Jalen a couple of weeks ago. And then without Cole Anthony last night, Suggs plays uh, not a ton of minutes. He played 25 minutes, and after a really slow start, I thought was at times the second-best player on the floor. He hit those three threes, which were huge shots, ended up with 21 points, uh, turned the ball over four times, had a couple of those live ball turnovers that Jamal Mosley talked about. The Magic turned it over last night um, 18 times and, and several live ball turnovers that became easy baskets uh, for Detroit. But after the 11-point lead to start, gave up 40 in the second uh, quarter and then had a play catcher, but got back in the game of the fourth quarter. Uh, Suggs fouls out. R.J. Hampton, they didn't lose because R.J. Hampton played, but R.J. comes in the final three-plus minutes, uh, and you kind of lost that ball handler there. And playing without Markel Fultz, without Cole Anthony, you're really limited on guys that can uh, do something with the basketball. I'll get back to Paolo in a second. The difference of the Magic being in the hunt of a play-in game. And quickly, 10 o'clock hour, WYGM Orlando, WJRHD2, Cocoa Beach, Orlando Sports Leader, Martinez and the Vita Sports. The difference of being in the hunt to make it in the top 10, to get to the play-in round, likely comes down to several games like last night. Okay, the NBA... Even though you have teams that are really good and teams that are not, there are so many games that come down to one and two possession games. You, know, you might lose by four because you, you miss a shot, you foul, they hit free throws, and you lose by four or five or something like that. But if you're a Magic fan, you know you've watched that game so many times in recent years. And like I said earlier, you can appreciate Paolo's performance and the performance of others, and you can also then look at the game and go, what happened and why they lose. And having seen that type of game, you've got to win more of those. That's the difference of being in that hunt to make the play-in round. The five or six games that can swing your way if you think the team can win 33-34 games and you swing a few more of those your way, whether it's now 37, 38, or 40, that's the difference of getting in. And late game execution in the half court is often the difference of what makes really good teams good and teams that end up in the lottery not as good. So they lost the game to the Pistons, uh, and you can separate the two. And I, 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 and I was juggling watching the Yankee game uh, last night, the Nick game last night, and uh, this game last night. The Nick game ended later. Uh, but I, I enjoyed watching the Magic play last night. And I really enjoyed watching Paolo play last night. And I look forward to watching him in his next game because I do think that there is an it factor there. And he plays with a level of confidence that I don't think is arrogance, but a level of confidence that you like. And I, and he will have bad games. He will. He'll have stinkers. He'll go three for 16. He'll turn the ball over six times. He'll get in foul trouble. But he'll also have games that he's going to be one of the best, if not the best, player on the court. And as good as Cade Cunningham is, and he's good. Paolo was the best player on the floor last night. That is not going to be the case for 82 games, but it was last night. And as a Magic fan, you haven't seen... That in a long time. 
the new guy that looks the part and performs. Franz Wagner last year, you didn't have high expectations for. Most people still didn't know that guy in Michigan that didn't have great stats, and all of a sudden he starts playing a little bit, and you're like, oh, that's oh wow, that's not bad. And then by the end of the year, you're like, he might be the team's best player. But Powell looks like he's got something that gets excited to watch them play uh, the next basketball game. So, again, you could separate. I thought Jalen Suggs played well. Uh, Wagner, after a slow start, uh, got better. Um, and I I want a bigger sample size. I'm not using a one-game sample size. I can't take an 18-minute performance and conclude that Bowl Bowl is an added wild card. But I will say... He was effective last night, and in the fourth quarter when Jamal Mosley left him or brought him in, uh, he he made some nice plays, and a guy that's battled injuries. I need a bigger sample size. And then, of course, there was the, what happened to Mo Bamba, 12 minutes and no points and 0-5 shooting over four from the three-point line, and you're like, what, 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 what was that? And Chumo Kiki didn't give him anything either last night. But, um, fun game, they lost. Paolo was fun. It's one game. Let's get on to the second game, and then we'll begin to build this data bank of uh, highlights and information to get a better idea about what the basketball team uh, has. Um, but it's fun, full night of NBA basketball with some interesting uh, performances and scores. Uh, last night around the league, like I said, I watched my Knicks, so I had no business being in a game with the Grizzlies. They were in the game uh, and yet lost. Uh, and then the score that I think shook the NBA last night is the 130-108 Pelicans win over the Nets. And never really a game. 32-14 after one. And Kevin Durant went for 32 last night. And Kyrie Irving was 6 of 19 for 15 points. And Ben Simmons played 23 minutes, scored 4 points, was over 2 at the free throw line. And after missing his first at home, there was this chill in the building that one can only imagine what Ben Simmons felt when he attempted the second free throw because, and I didn't see it live, but I saw the clip that was posted. He he, he misses the first, and the, he, I'm just watching a video clip, and there's this, this chill, like, what is he going to do now? And he missed it. And uh, the Nets get blown out uh, by the Pelicans, and Zion went for 25-9. and nine. Uh, last night in one of the scores that kind of jumped out at a lot of people. Um, all right, uh, a, a quick college football slash sports media rights story. A couple of people uh, yesterday had uh, the story. And um, first, to give credit, Ari Temkin does a show on uh, Sirius XM's Big 12 radio. So he does a, a, a daily show that focuses on the Big 12. And he had Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark on for an interview. And Yormark is, I think he's a not a little, I think he's a lot different than the other commissioners in the sense of he's not afraid to talk about some things that he's even foreshadowing to come. And he mentioned yesterday he anticipates a, a new media deal in the next one to two weeks. And then said he anticipates that it will be a higher deal than the one that the Big 12 currently has. Well, that made some people go, what? Huh? huh? Uh, Dennis Dodd followed up by speaking to Yormark after the Temkin interview. He posted a story last night 
that said pretty much the same thing. And then people began speculating, well, how much is that deal going to be worth per school and all sorts of stuff? Okay, then also yesterday, Andrew Marchand, who does a sports media podcast, and Andrew's with the New York Post, and John Orans with Sports Business Journal, and they do a very popular sports media uh, podcast. Among many things they talked about, Marchand put a number out there saying he heard about $400 million for the Big 12. And people go, oh, okay, well, you know, what does that mean? All right, a lot of moving parts here. A lot of moving parts. A couple things, because context and facts matter. The Big 12 has an existing contract with ESPN and Fox. That contract does not allow for them to go to the open market to talk to anybody else. The contract allows the conference to engage in conversations with its existing media partners, the uh, uh, Fox and ESPN, about extending the current deal. And that is what your mark has had discussions with. The choice he and his advisors, and they have both internal people and groups that he's hired, media consultants, to say what's our best path in what has become this chaotic sports media landscape, watching what the Big Ten did and taking who they took and signing a multi-billion dollar deal, and what happens next, the Pac-12 then opening up their media rights window and everything that some have suggested about your mark, you go strike now. Look for an extension of your existing deals and go get dollars and let the Pac-12 fight for whatever they can get. And so the $40 million that was thrown out by Andrew Marchand and some others jumped on that, keep in mind, okay, whatever dollars the Big 12 agrees to, and it looks as if he's going to extend the deal with ESPN and Fox. I don't know what that extension is. And maybe it's short-term. They've got two years left in the deal. The 23 and 24 college football seasons and then all the way through the end of the uh, baseball a year in 24-25. Then you can have a new deal. And maybe they tack on years after that. My guess, and it's nothing more than a guess, is that your mark may be working on a deal with those media partners to allow Texas and Oklahoma to leave after 2023-24 athletic year in return for X amount of dollars and whatever it may be. But here's where your mark is correctly selling the projected increase in payout, which has some people going, how's that possible with Oklahoma and Texas leaving? Because he's rightfully putting in the projected jump in revenue of an expanded college football playoff. Whatever the media deal is, and if you use the $400 million number and divide it among the 12 Big 12 schools that will be left after Texas, Oklahoma leave, and it may not be till 25 that, and maybe 26 that UCF gets a full cut because of how they use dollars to pay the buy-in, handle their buyout, and all that stuff. But $400 million divided by 12 is $33.3 million per school. Okay, but I heard people talk about $60 million. How do you get there? Current Power Five teams, uh, Power Five conferences, current Power Five conferences make about $103 million when you take into account their bowl money and college football playoff money. Their bowl money and college football playoff money. It's about $103 million per Power Five league. A projected expansion of the college football playoff from 4 to 12, some say is worth about $450 million more. Now, don't split that five ways because the group of five gets a cut, as they currently do, but they split they split $85 million 
five conferences, one of the battles that'll be on the horizon is that the SEC and the Big Ten are going to argue, hey, we're going to get all this new money for the college football playoff. We're not splitting it five ways. We think we're worth more. In a 12-team playoff, if I'm Greg Sankey and I think I'm going to get four teams every single year, I'm not giving the Big 12 and the Pac-12 and the ACC the same amount. So they'll fight over the revenue distribution. And this is just a guess on my part. They'll settle on a flat number, meaning everybody's guaranteed blank. And if you get this uh, amount of schools in, it's worth this much. A lot of people don't like that idea because then you're putting teams in a position where they're playing for potentially $30, $40, 50000000 million, win or lose, but that's probably where we're headed. Even if you do the dollars and say the Big 12 will jump from $103 million to $200 million on the low end of the projected number, then you add in likely some form of streaming package that Brett Yormark is going to get, whether it's a combination of staying with ESPN Plus or doing some type of streaming deal with one of the streaming uh, uh, companies out there. And on the low end, that could be worth an additional $5 million. Which, by the way, the, back to the playoff money. If you take the $200 million and slice it, again, that's $16.7 million. Tack on the 33.3 before, now I'm at 50. Then I take those Tier 3, which is the other stuff that you see like an ESPN Plus now, um, or other events that you can broadcast. And then I think your mark, if you listen to the interview he did yesterday, he talked about we're going to be creative with new content, and I think, and I'm privy to some of it, and because of that I can't say, you're going to see they will throw out new revenue opportunities. You're going to see things that, that they're going to sell that has value to its media partners. And value to locales that bring certain things in. That's where 33.3, 16.7 in bold and playoff money, uh, tier three streaming rights, and new content, that gets you towards the $55, $60 million a year. That gets you more than what they just paid out, which was $42.3 million with Oklahoma and Texas. So he's not wrong that it's probably going to go up because he's getting more playoff money. So that's where that came from. A lot of people are trying to figure that out yesterday. And I, I'm guessing, again, I don't know this to be true. I think that he'll announce a extension of their current media deal when they release the 23 football schedule, which I think is sometime in November. That he'll say, look, I got, I got a schedule for next year, and here's my extension. And again, I guess on my part, I think they extend the current deal X number of years to go back to market in, let's say, five more years and... See what the market is then. Our good friend Rudy Angolia will be calling the UCF ECU football game for ESPNU on Saturday. Uh, we'll talk some college football with us next. Such a good song. Collins plays all the instruments on this. At once? Well, not at once, but... We are brought to you by Seminole Power Sports, number one in fast fun, Reinhardt Road in Sanford, Highway 441 in Eustace. Visit them at SeminolePowerSports.com. Uh, Reading Golia is part of the ESPN broadcast team for college football. He'll be on the call for uh, the TV broadcast of the UCF East Carolina game. 
and headed up to Greenville today because if one gets a chance to spend extra time in Greenville, they take advantage of it. Right, Randy? Of course, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm actually at uh, Orlando Airport now. I'm in the corner of the Sky Lounge. It is in Delta. It's completely packed, as you can imagine. So hopefully we won't get interrupted. But, yeah, you know, a little uh, Eastern North Carolina barbecue started a little uh, Twitter storm between UCF and ECU fans. <laughs> someone asked me what I like to eat, and I know Gus was asked about it as well. So, uh, you know, I'm neutral. I eat anything, Mark. So, uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I liked how Mike used to goes, I don't know what the delicacy down in Orlando is. It's called sunshine, okay? And then we just worry about what we eat uh, later in uh, the day. Exactly. Let me get to college football. You did the uh, uh, the UCF-SMU game when the schedule kind of got all out of whack with the storm and they kept the crew local and so forth. So what stood out to you about the offensive performance for UCF in that game before they put up 70 on Temple? Yeah, so it's the second half, and I think we all can agree with this, and I hate to use the cliche, you know, a light switch was turned on, but John Rice Plumley in that second half of that SMU game, it just seemed like he was in rhythm. His timing was better. His touch was better in some of those deep balls. Uh, you know, specifically that one he hit to Ryan O'Keefe in that back corner of the end zone. You can't throw a better ball than that. So I, I just think he, he just felt better and was more comfortable, and he carried it over and looked great uh, at the Temple game. I was actually at the Temple game in person, so I watched that one and went back and watched it on TV. So, yeah, I just think rhythm and timing. And Gus kept saying that. Listen, you know, he took a couple years off at quarterback in that position, and you know this, Mark. You need reps, timing, you know, just just do it. Some, you know, sometimes I think he has a tendency to, you know, think he's in center field and the guy's tagging up at third and he's trying to throw him out at home. He, he, he doesn't put that the necessary air under the ball, but he looked like he did that in the second half of SMU, and it's carried over. And I, I think it's great for uh, UCF. If you're a UCF fan, this offense, and he's surrounded by talent everywhere and speed, they're going to be they're going to be really hard to slow down here in the uh, latter half of this season. Uh... Defensively for UCF, they've given up just nine fourth quarter points, and at times they'll bend but not break. They've been so good leading the country in red zone defense. They've played well in third and fourth downs. How about the night defense and what has stood out in these last couple games as well as the whole season? I think that's the biggest story, really. Fans want to talk offense, so everyone talked about the 70 they put up against Temple, and rightfully so. I get it. To me, the story of UCF this year is their defense. You know, I asked Travis Williams about this. He just said he thinks the improvement is that it's the second year in his system. The kids understand it better. Tons of speed and athletes on the defensive side of the ball. And you look at the back end. Jason Johnson has been an incredible addition, right, at linebacker, leading the team in tackles. And then Jeremiah Jean Baptiste, to me, is the most improved player at probably the most important position. Um, and then, of course, you know, Celestar, Montalvo, Barber, Morris Brash. Up front, they have all the pieces, and you're right. That red zone defense, it's phenomenal. And people ask, well, why is the red zone defense so good? The field shortens. There's not enough room for the offense to operate as normal. The speed of that UCF defense really kicks in, and they've been tremendous. So I'm anticipating a great matchup. I can't wait to see them go up against a very experienced quarterback in Holt Mailer's who seems like he's been in the American for about eight years now. It is crazy. I joke it's his ninth season at uh, East Carolina. Yeah. But, you know, Mike Houston, uh, he got that thing going at James Madison, which we've seen their transition to uh, FBS. He needed a few recruiting classes. They got some tall, wide receivers on the outside. But give me your view about their offense. Keaton Mitchell's the uh, all-conference running back. And a 
Sellers is an experienced guy. His first start was against UCF in 2018. So when you look at their offense, what stands out? Yeah, and I'm a big Mike Houston fan. I covered him a, a bunch at JMU. You know, he brought both coordinators with him. Donnie Kirkpatrick, his offense coordinator, was at JMU. Blake Harrell, D.C. So, you know, a lot of familiarity. Um, Keaton Mitchell is everything he's advertised. The kid is really, really good. Unfortunately for ECU, is they lost Raji Harris. He got hurt in that USF game. I believe he's out for the season. Yes. Hurt his knee. So the backup's a true freshman, Marlon Gubb. But Keaton Mitchell is someone that the UCF defense has to know where he is at all times. Holt Mailers, again, um, it's really, I think, what sets him apart is his experience. I don't think you're going to trick him much with defenses. You know, the defensive coordinators like to give different looks. Holt Mailers has seen it all. And you're right, C.J. Johnson, who, who Aylers went to high school with, big receiver on the outside. Jalen Johnson's another one. Isaiah Winstead, so 6'3", six, 6'4", six, guys on the outside. And he'll throw that 50-50 ball up. So the defensive secondary uh, for UCF is going to be tested. Offensive line, pretty good. I don't think they're as good as the UCF offensive line, but they're going to get after you. And, again, a Mike Houston team is well-coached. You know that. Um, and, and defense for them, too, scrappy. I know they've been banged up, but this is the time of the season everyone gets banged up. But really, it was that interception return for a TD by Julius Wood against Memphis that really turned the momentum in that game, and then they were gritty and they fought. If anyone um, watched that game or if you didn't watch that game, to win that thing in four overtimes, because it looked like they lost it a couple different times, and they kept fighting and they kept fighting, and they got the win, and, that, and that's kind of what, what a Mike Houston's team does. I'm going to guess Gus Malzahn will say he doesn't have to concern himself about this, but maybe to some degree he is. I was, I was exchanging message with Kenzie Milton earlier, and he said the challenge for UCF outside of a quality East Carolina team is it's the game before the next big game. Cincinnati looms next week. They play at SMU in a tough game, but you got to not forget about the game you have here. How big of a factor can that be in Saturday's game? Absolutely can be a factor, so that's why he has to take it head on. You can't ignore it. You got to talk to your players about it. And the other thing is, with with ECU getting that win the way they did, their stadium is going to be more packed than it would have been if they would have ended up losing that game. There's there's no doubt about it. So yeah, you cannot look ahead to a big Cincinnati game because if you start looking, you know that game's either going probably three thirty on ABC. Or, or 12 o'clock uh, noon on ESPN, I, I got a feeling it's going to be 3.30 ABC game if they both hold suit this week. Cincinnati plays SMU, so not an easy one there. But, yes, you have to stay focused. And the thing with ECU is they're that, they're that team, and you know this, Mark. They can jump up and bite you. And I just – an interesting tidbit. You probably know this, Mark, but do you realize who East Carolina's next four games are? Uh, Well – in front of me, I do, but I mean, it's a so point you're UCF, getting at. Yeah. UCF, BYU, Cincinnati, and Houston. Yeah. All four teams that are leaving to go to the Big 12. And don't think that those kids don't know that, too. Right. Yeah, I've talked to some teams about this, and the, the teams that are departing the American and moving to Big 12, that gives them a little added bullseye on them as well. So ECU is going to be ready to play this game. UCF cannot overlook them. Because to me, that's the only way they can stumble here is if they're not prepared and they're not ready uh, and they're thinking ahead to Cincinnati. They have to. If they play the way they did against Temple, second half against SMU, I honestly don't think they'll have a problem in this game. Uh, but we'll see because I know ECU is going to be ready to play. Hey, um, what's the biggest jump for these four schools in the move to the Big 12, and I I think you'll agree, skill-wise, you can find talent in a lot of places. Is it the linemen, and what is the biggest difference of that 
top-level G5 offensive and defensive linemen to at least the middle of the pack of P5 when it comes to linemen. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's depth. I think when you get to the, the P5s, the Power 5s, there's more of them, right? There's more depth. There's better. Because you, you get that, that kid that goes to a Power 5 that maybe doesn't win the starting job, but he's a really good offensive lineman where if he goes to a group of five, he's, he's, he's going to start. So I just think the depth is the biggest thing. There's no doubt about that. You're right. I think there's a lot of speed out there now. And plus, the schools that are going, you know, UCF, Cincy, uh, Houston, BYU, they've been – they've not, kids know they, they're going, so they've been recruiting knowing, hey, we're going to the Power Five. So, yeah, skill-wise, I don't think they're a problem. I think I would say the depth uh, in the offensive line is the biggest issue. And, and But, I, again, I think these schools have been recruiting for that. And then the other thing is, too, and it's I love the American. It's not a knock on the American. It's not Because I think the American is the next best conference. Um, and I would actually put the American up right now uh, against, like, the Pac-12 and, and, and that. But I, I just think – once you get to those power five conferences, you just you never really get a break. You know what I mean? You're you're gonna get you're gonna get the best of the best each and every week, uh, other than, you know, maybe you're not conference games that you schedule. So you gotta be ready to strap it up every week. Before you take an extra package of mick a uh, mixed nuts and get on your flight to head to Carolina, <laughs> um when I say Rini Angolia doesn't mind watching these copper investigative shows on T V, even though you probably laugh at the whole process since this is still what you do and do it quite well. Is there a show or two that you watch among the police investigative shows on TV? There's actually not one that I watch, but lately, because, you know, traveling, like, you you know, you uh-huh. guys travel, so I'm in the hotel a lot, and I'm flipping through. So this, this it's an older show, but Rizzoli and Isles always pop oh, up. Yeah. I seem to just... I seem to just watch it, you know what I mean? So, you know, and Angie Harmon, she used to be uh, married to Jason Seahorn, yeah. the New York Giant. I know you know that, Mark. And Jason used to work with us at ESPN with a colleague of mine. I don't think they're married anymore, but I always stop and I always, that always pops in my head. And so I always watch that show. So I guess that's a guilty pleasure. There you go. Have a safe flight. I'll see you in a couple of days. Thanks, man. You got it, buddy. Thanks. Rudy Angolia, just really, really good guy. He came out of retirement. He retired and they brought him back. He works on cold cases, like real ones, not... The ones on TV. Not the show Cold Case. No. No. Um, When we come back, our good friend Cam Miller, Pro Football Network, the latest in college football on the field from last week. Stars to watch this week. That's next. Has the snap, makes the handoff, rolls left, goes in zone for six. Touchdown! Time to check in with Pro Football Network's Cam Miller for the latest on college football. Get the latest college football news at ProFootballNetwork.com. Cam Miller joins us uh, Thursdays at this time, Senior Director of College Football Network, which is partnered with Pro Football Network and rolling out soon. Uh, He's on Twitter at Cam Miller, uh, at PFN365 and at CFN365. And it's set for a second half of the college football season. The first half's gone already. How about that? We blinked, right? It feels doesn't it feel like August goes by so slow those yeah. four weeks, and the next thing you know, it's week eight of college football, and we're and we're left here looking at uh, some pretty amazing performances so far, though. Mm. Uh, speaking of amazing performances, just give me your thoughts on that game in Knoxville. Then we'll get to some of the individual performances. What an up and down Tennessee jumps out bigly. Bama comes back, look like they're going to take control, and then the crazy finish. What did you just think of the game itself? Kudos to Josh Heifel for keeping the team calm and collected during, uh, you know, the ebb and flow of that game and head to poker for, uh, you know, they, they left too much time on the clock for, for a guy who's as dynamic as he is. I think what we really saw as good as Tennessee is 
Alabama's defense might be worse. And a, and a quarterback that can pick apart their secondary, uh, the recipe for beating them this year, it seems like they need to, they need some help on the back end uh, in their secondary. I think it's the biggest claim uh, or biggest takeaway. But overall, Hendon Hooker, you know, we, we've got our first really big Heisman moment in Hooker's. What'd you make of uh, Jalen Hyatt? I mean, if you're going to have a coming out party in front of that audience, that's the game to have it. My God. Yeah. I got to give credit to James Fergoza, my one of my draft analysts, who, when he was doing his summer scouting reports, found Hyatt, and he claimed he said it might be a hot take, but we'll see. He said that he was uh, he, he liked Hyatt, Hyatt better than Cedric Tillman. Now, of, of course, Tillman couldn't go; he's, he's injured and a bit banged up to be limited. But Hyatt is showcasing that uh, I think his proverbial draft floor is now round three, and he might even be able to sneak his way back into uh, that, that first round with with his overall skill set. What a game it was! Is the Bama defense playing? Below expectations, were they overrated? I mean, what what should I make of what's been this defense this year? It's tough. I, I think it was probably right to rate them where we thought they should be, uh, because based on the caliber of play and players that they have, and you know, you, you take a grain of salt with their recruiting rankings when you're playing as many true sophomores and ultimately some freshmen as, as they are. But I just think, yes, yeah, so, oh, maybe a touch overrated, but then also very underwhelming. I think the speed of the SEC offenses has caught up to them as they've adjusted to life in SEC conference play. And you're not going to get a deep, or an offense that's much faster than Tennessee's in the entire nation. So I think that you know they're a touch slow. It, it might be correctable in the long run this season or ultimately next year for them. But I, I think that there's that recipe to beat, to beat them. And it's you know, hustle to the line, keep them in there their defensive formation, their scheme, and not allow them to make adjustments mid-play with, uh, with substitutions. So I think that uh, the age showcased, too. They're, they're a very young defense on the back end, at least. You've got a halfway point mid-season All-American teams up that people can go and click on and see for themselves. I bring this up because um, that's at ProFootballNetwork.com. I'm watching Michigan-Penn State, and it looked like Bo's teams in the 70s and 80s. I'm just going to line up with this big offensive line I'm going to run it 55 times. You study the quality of the line. It just looked like here's a bunch of 6'3", 6'4", 320-pound dudes that are going to open up holes. How good is that Michigan line, and who are some guys that are worthy of paying attention to? The, um, all of them, all five of them. Uh, we were, they were even missing Trente Jones as well, their right tackle in the game against Penn State, and they still were able to do that. So they go six or seven deep at this point. Uh, the, the real big ones that I think are, are proving themselves is Olu Olu Matineg, the, the transfer center from Virginia, he looked around, hit the transfer portal from Virginia when Mendenhall left, and here he is playing for the reigning Joe Moore Award winners for the uh, best offensive line in the country. They're on their way uh, to win that Joe Moore Award again as well this year. Olubatime is incredible. He's a big, strong guy in pass protection, but he's a center that you know he makes the highlight reels happen because he's the guy who pulls and he'll pancake a, a first-line defender, a defensive lineman, or he'll also go second-level hunting, I call it, where he's looking for a linebacker to, to plant as well. He's a big dude who moves so well on his feet, and he's one to watch. Zach Venter and the Ryan Hayes, their left tackle as well. These guys are, uh, they're again, six or seven deep, and these are all NFL players on that offensive line. I'm going to keep the lineman talk going. So I'm watching Oklahoma State TCU, a great interest with UCF going there next year. Plus, it was a really good game. I know it's on Alabama and Tennessee, but I'm going back and forth. Um, and they did a good job. Steve Avila, the, the, the center for TCU, that dude took on, two guys at once and help with protection and, and we give skilled players credit in the fourth quarter that dude gave his quarterback time to make plays and you know when you look at the tape that's the difference sometimes of wins and losses we talk about quarterbacks and receivers but it's the guy that picks up the extra blocker that suddenly helps out and keeps the drive going yeah it's uh the the uh, steven villas 
availability in pass protection, I call it, is when you're, you're looking out, you don't have a guy heads up on you, you don't have a guy in your gap, your, your protection scheme schemes that you say you look for the, you know, from the three to the seven and no one's rushing there. So what does he do? He looks for, he looks for work, so to speak. And that's what he does. He picks up blockers. He picks up unblocked pressure getters. He, he blitzing linebackers, but he's also a guy who moves around and calls the shots for that, that offensive line. Give Gary Patterson credit. He's not there anymore, but the way he was able to recruit this offensive line and develop these players as well. We're talking about Alan Ali, the transfer from SMU, Coleman, Lance, and Coker as well, all potential NFL players. They're led by Avila, who, I mean, again, it's another guy. If you watch Old of the Team A at Michigan, watch this TCU offensive line and watch big number 79, the guy who uh, he constantly was looking for work, strong balance, contact balance, and, and also, I mean, his hands and his feet and his strength from head to toe. It's, this guy is super impressive. We've watched the emergence, and I say this in a complimentary way, the freaks of tight ends, uh, the, the, the six four six five machines that make incredible catches. And I'm watching uh, Utah, USC, and Dalton Kincaid. It's like, oh, there's Kincaid again. Dude, that's 16 catches in the game for 234. Can we also take a minute to, to rep- understand that he's also their backup tight end? That's how good Brant Keithy is as well out there. And so, uh, you know, Brant Keithy's always been injured, it feels like, so you feel for him. But is the Dalton Kincaid coming out party and all those truthers for, for Dalton Kincaid? I mean, he's another one of these receivers trapped in a tight end's body, but he also does an incredible job in pass protection because that's what his role was going into the season. He was that second tight end that they brought in when they needed help chipping a, a good edge defender. Or he was also the guy they brought in to run block as well. This uh, this very pro-style offense in Utah has made this tight end, Dalton Kincaid, and he's made some special plays as well. So he's, he's creeping up in that draft talk, draft talk where uh, he might be tight end two in this class and just because Michael Mayer's a freak. We talk about uh, the, the, the use of technology today. You posted a few clips we're measuring speed of guys, particularly uh, running backs. It sounds like a silly question. Is it that big of a difference if a guy can get X miles per hour in the free? It's Yes, but not as much as you would think because they're all probably running that much and we're just focusing on the one ball carrier. I think what you look at is how fast they can go from, uh, let's, let's use Daquan Finn, the Toledo quarterback, who was the fastest ball carrier according to recruiting analytics this past week, 21.3 miles per hour. But he also, it was right at the goal line, right from five to, to the goal line where he went from 19 to 21. So that burst that he was able to do, he, he didn't need it there, but he still used it and got across the goal line. It's that that you look for. Not top speed because how often are you going to actually get the top speed on a football field? But that burst to get two extra miles an hour up past the defender, that's going to get you a first down. That'll get you to the pylon. That'll get you to the end zone. So I look at it that way. It's all just part of this growing world of evolution of uh, looking at sports. It's not just your eye test anymore. It's not just analytics. you got to put all of it together, and this is another helpful tool. Uh, at Purdue, Aiden O'Connell can throw the ball well. Uh, Charlie Jones, what's his, what's his pro scouting report look like? Chuck Sizzle. This is a guy who, if Rondell Moore had the best body control when he was coming out of Purdue, Charlie Jones one-ups Rondell Moore. He's not quite a Rondell Moore in the sense that he's as shifty as that, but he's a guy who has body control. And I mean, on the sidelines, you throw him out of bounds five yards, he's still going to be able to plant his toes and get both feet inbounds. He's going to be able to high point the ball, come down with everything. He, uh, you know, We were supposed to see some good players come out of this Purdue receiving core over the past few years from this wide-open offense. He's actually making Aiden O'Connell look a little bit better, in my opinion, because of it. I think Charlie Jones might be the best of these Purdue receivers, David Bell, Rondell Moore included, over the past half decade. Um, I, I'm curious. Look back at the first half of the season, and, and you put your halfway All-Americans up there. 
Give me somebody, a player or two, that has been disappointing as for what the projection was coming into the year that has underperformed, still has a second half of the year perhaps to uh, get things back on track. But give me a name or two, not to pick on him, but guys that have underperformed thus far. You know, Will Anderson, I look at that, whether that was schematic um, or the, the change. I know he still made my midseason All-American team, but when you go from leading the nation in tackles for loss by double digits and you're only putting up you know a handful of them this season, I know he's got to pick six, and it might be schemed to just a, a little bit differently. I, I look at him as he needs to have more of an impact on a defense that is struggling to have a star player. Um, also, ultimately, I, I would put it's, – it's tough not to pick on too many of them, and I, it's – I'm saying this because I think that there's more. Quinn Eros was the injury, but also Bijan Robinson, the fumble in key moments as well. I, I think that we look at Bijan and we want him to be a Saquon Barkley, right? And I know Texas might be back and fans might want to see the, this team be good. We'll, we'll see how good they are. But he's got key moments in, in fumble, the fumble in a key moment, but also he's just not generating quite the yards after contact that we have been known to to see from him. He's not a Saquon Barkley, and I actually like Jameer Gibbs better than I do Bijan Robinson as a college running back and in the NFL. Well, Gibbs runs hard, doesn't he? He just he's so dude runs hard. And that I mean, he's he's like a ninety percent version of Alvin Kamara. In this, when Alvin's healthy, he's, he's a pass catcher, running back through the tackles. It doesn't matter where you give him the ball; just get him the ball. Uh, can Garrett Schrader have success with the Syracuse offense against that Clemson D this week? There, there is a roadmap to victory here, and I think we'll have to see Garrett Schrader, the best of Garrett Schrader, throwing the football as well. I, I think that we're. The offensive line's good. Matthew Berger on the left tackle is coming you know, to who we thought he could be. I do think that they, the roadmap is there to defeat them. It's allowing their edge defenders to get upfield and then allowing Schrader to buy time and build that pocket, use his arm because he's not going to be able to be the most athletic person when he gets that linebacking core. So he's going to have to use his arm and his accuracy downfield. We know they're going to get some chunk plays here and there with him and Tucker. Sean Tucker, the running back, but he needs to be able to be downfield and accurate at the same time this, this week against Clemson. By the way, it's a fascinating week, which is going to lead to a question here. UCF plays at East Carolina. Cincinnati plays at SMU before the two play here next week. If they both win, it sets up the biggest game in the American. You always got to be careful the game before the game. I know you like Tanner Mordecai. He struggled in the second half against UCF, and even though Navy, with that offense, gave SMU fits, Mordecai still makes some really good passes, and he did in that game. And Navy's not a great defense, but how about SMU and that offense against Cincinnati's defense? Yeah, I mean, Mordecai has a Baker Mayfield to him, and I know Baker Mayfield's become a disgrace in the NFL now by play standards, but in college he was incredibly talented, unbeatable almost at times. Mordecai's got that ability, but he can take over. He's got, he almost looks like a Baker Mayfield light in college, where he doesn't matter where he's throwing from. And he's, you know, Rashi Rice has helped him out a ton this season by, by bailing him out on some of these overthrows or intentional throws. He's trying to get out of, the, out, of, out of the way. So he's not been what we thought he was, though, I guess. So you could honestly go back to the disappointing question. And, and Mordecai's been up there uh, with disappointing quarterback play. I still think he can give them fits, though, because if he plays on top of his game, you know, he, we saw it against UCF and, and that spurts this season. He is accurate. He's got a strong arm. And, again, it doesn't matter. He can, he can break contain a throw off platform very well, very accurate. So – I, Cincinnati's defense isn't quite what it was, and especially in coverage uh, and on the pass rush, so he might have some time to dissect the defense here, and they, they could give him fits. Maybe the last time people saw this quarterback and their team, they were not impressed at all, rightfully so. Oregon got blown out by Georgia. But Bo Nix has quietly played better. I don't know if that means that they can beat UCLA, but I guess they can. I mean, it's a 9-10 matchup, and the game uh, is at Oregon. Give me a quick thought on UCLA-Oregon. 
you know, he's it's as unsustainable, unsustainable level of play as we've ever seen from Bo Nix because he's running the ball better than most running backs and, of course, every quarterback in the country right now. So i not quite sold on Kenny Dillingham's play calling. I, I know that they got the big win against BYU and they looked good, but that was a couple of unlucky bounces for BYU that put Oregon in a position. Uh, and being able to run as Bo Nix wants to do, I, I don't know if UCLA's defense is going to give him those chances. I actually like UCLA in this one. Not quite a sweeper, actually, by a comfortable margin. By the way, Tulane's ranked now. <laughs> as, as happy as I could be for a program, uh, you know, it said 25th slot. It was James yeah. last week, happy for the Dukes, and then now here we're with the Green Wave, who... I don't know what happened against Southern Miss. Don't know. I, I'll never understand that game as long as I can analyze football. That pass defense is legit. It's very it's really good. The way that they scheme them, it's, it, they're awesome. They're a fun program to watch. That offensive line is very good as well. But they will look. UCF's got a chance. Cincinnati's got a chance. Tulane will earn it. Earn it if they win because uh, they got Memphis this week. Then at Tulsa. Then UCF, SMU, Cincinnati. If they're left standing, they, they will have earned it. You know, I mean, if you I win, mean, that's they, yeah. they'll earn the eight. They'll earn, they'll earn the American. They'll earn look at a, at a New Year's Six Bowl, yeah. in my opinion, too. If they get through that, what is a, it's a gauntlet. You know, they get the fortune of, of bringing UCF and SMU to to New Orleans. So, but it's a, that's a tough road, tough road ahead. And I think that honestly, that pass defense will give each of those teams some problems. Uh, Cam Miller is on a Twitter at Cam Miller, Senior Director of College Football Network and the NFL Draft. Uh, they're on Twitter at PFN365 and uh, CFN365. Check out ProFootballNetwork.com and, of course, uh, coming soon, CollegeFootballNetwork.com. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you. You as well, man. Thanks. Uh, 11 o'clock hour. Matt Stinchcomb, the College Football Hall of Famer and a part of the SEC Network and ESPN will join us in our Countdown of Old Time segment in about uh, 20 minutes or so. you got 13 chances a day to win $1,000. Next opportunity comes your way about 10 past the hour. When you hear that sounder and keyword, go to 96onthegame.com. Right there on the main page, you can enter that keyword, and you might win $1,000. We're back to kick off the 11 o'clock hour with Scott and the News next. Let's really do the news. Yes. Now it is time to do the news. But now it's time uh, for the news. 11 o'clock hour, WYGM Orlando, WJRR, HD2, Coco Beach, Orlando Sports Leader, Mardianos and the Beat of Sports. What up, my news heads? Whoa. What's going on? Yeah. What a fine Thursday morning it is in the city. Beautiful. I'm Scott Harris. That's Mark Daniels. We are going to run through the top stories in the sports world with the award-winning, highly anticipated, highly listened to news segment. Highly rated, Mark. Highly rated. I haven't seen the numbers yet, so hopefully you know something I don't know. First up in the news. Bojan Bagdanovic scored 24 points in his debut with Detroit, helping the Pistons beat the Magic 113-109. Paolo Bencaro, the number one overall pick in this past summer's draft, had 27 points, 9 rebounds, and 5 assists in his NBA debut. Meanwhile, Cade Cunningham, last year's number one pick, had 18 points and 10 assists. All right, great it. You said we were going to go through possession by possession. Let's go. Oh, Paolo's performance on a piece of ice in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paulo, it, it, it's an A plus. He was great. Nice. Okay. Good. He was great last night. It, it was fun to watch. Uh, for most of that game, he was the best player on the floor. 
and they're going to be nights that he's going to be really, really good. And some nights he'll have bad nights because he's a rookie, but uh, if you watch that game, whether you're a Magic fan or just a basketball fan, you look and go, that guy looks like he's got it. That guy looks like he's going to be really good. And That guy. We haven't had one of those in a while. By the way, all these number one draft picks in recent years, um, considering some no, no, top red-shirted. Draft, top draft picks, not number one draft no, picks. No, no, no. Well, no, I'm talking about magic draft picks. Okay. Guys that you looked and go, okay, that guy can play. You didn't know that about Franz Wagner when the year started. I thought Jalen Suggs was going to be that guy, and it turned out to not be a great year. Combination of injuries, and he didn't play well. But you go back and take a look. Aaron Gordon was an athletic guy that was very raw playing basketball. Jonathan Isaac, same deal. Looked like a big guy that's still had to get comfortable. You look at Paolo, he looked fine. He looked comfortable. He looked really good. And you have not had that in a long time as a Magic fan. By the way, if, if anyone in the audience missed this earlier, Mark literally was breaking down the cutting ability of Paolo and be like, yep, that's what he learned from Coach K. I did drop that. That was a Jay Billis-like analysis. My point was, if you watch a game, you don't have to be a basketball expert to know that it looks like that guy's doing good things. But if you want to look at it, he does know how to move in the half court without the basketball to not just anticipate and say, oh, I'll get in position to get the ball. He did things throughout that game that helped his teammates get easier opportunities to score that I I think is a big challenge for a lot of rookies when they come into the game. Picked the wrong week to buy Tesla, huh? Yeah, it'll buy the dip. I, I, I don't own Tesla, guys. John Moran had 34 points and nine assists in the Grizzlies beat the Knicks 115 to 112 in overtime in their season Cheaters. opener. Julius Randle <clears throat> led the Knicks with 24 points and 11 rebounds, while Cam Reddish added 22, making nine of 15. Surprising performance by from Cam the field. Reddish. Isaiah Hartenstein finished with 16 points. Uh, 40 minutes out of Hartenstein last night. You're a big fan of his. Remember the Magic were thought to be yes. the team that he was going to sign with, and he signed with the Knicks, and I really mm-hmm. liked it. He went for 16-8 and eight last night because Mitchell Robinson played a total of 13 minutes because uh, he was in foul trouble before tip-off uh, last night. And the Knicks lost by three in overtime, going 9-for-37 from the three-point line. 9-for-37 from the three-point line. We were called for 26 fouls. We, that's right, they for 17. The Grizzlies took a 115-112 lead on Tyus Jones' three-pointer with 47 seconds left. Magic legend Evan Fournier had a chance to send the game into a second overtime, but his shot from the left corner as time expired was off the mark. Classic Fournier night, 33 minutes, 14 points, 4 of 11 shooting. Uh, next up in the news, Liz Truss has RJ a new job. Three for eighteen, though. What? Liz Truss has a new job. She's joined uh, the Oak- uh, the Alabama staff as an analyst. As an analyst, yes. Forty four days after Prime Minister in the UK career rehab, right? You're gonna come out swinging with some ideas. You better have hit some home runs, but you can't strike out five times in a game and say it's no big deal. When Justin Verlander was laboring and needed 45 pitches to get through two innings, Dusty Baker was worried he'd have to go to his bullpen early. Meanwhile, the veteran ace buckled down and found his groove, striking out 11 in six strong innings to lead Houston over the Yankees 4-2 in their season opener. Yuli Gurriel launched a tie-breaking homer for Houston in the sixth. Chaz McCormick and Jeremy Pena also went deep. Those two really hurt, you know. The, the one that's high, it's fine. It's, it, 
brought Schmidt back out. Didn't need to bring him back out. And a great double play to end the game, uh, to end the inning. I'm sorry, but this is going to sound really bad. A relief pitcher with the last name Schmidt, you're just like, oh, that doesn't instill confidence, does it? Wow. Yeah. That's I went a, there. That's I went a there. pretty aggressive attack. It, did, it is, yeah. But be honest, when you said he no, came no, back no, out. No, 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 it's unnecessary. It, it, he should not have come back mm-hmm. out. Well, the analytics said he should. Yeah. See, Peyton Manning's, uh, they're doing alternate broadcasts like a Manning cast for NBA coverage. Okay. Is this a part of Clipper Vision or not? No, 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 no. That's separate. And uh, Stephen A. Smith and Guest will be hosting the Manning cast of NBA games. And Guest? Yes. Who's the guest? Is it you? Well, no, that's to be determined. Oh. Yeah, they'll do four NBA games of the alternate broadcast. By the way, I asked you this at the very, very end of yesterday's show, but did... Did you uh did you go back and watch the Draymond Green documentary that ran on TNT before? I did see the clip. What what was that? Well, it, who does that help? Well, uh, listen, TNT produced that. I know. That wasn't him going on his own social media platform no, and doing something. That what? was TNT going to him and saying, you know, we'll do this in conjunction with you. And I just, I just want I don't know who that was going to make look good. It didn't make him... I'm sorry, it, that did not make him look good. Um, I don't know if I argue that. I I, I think... I also don't believe it when he says that I he think, doesn't read his social media comments. Well, I don't believe anybody that says that, but I do think that... That's saying you're here at this point. I, I think people have a hard time, even though a lot of people laughed at Draymond Green when he said, you know, he's new media. Mm-hmm. But I do think people are having a harder time understanding that athletes or entertainers use their platform for their, quote, brand development, whatever it is. And as that merges with traditional media, it does rub some people uh, the wrong way. Um, I mean, I watched it, and it looked somewhat staged on, you know, the, I mean, the way they shot it with the, you know, the dark background and everything, but it was almost like, hey, this is Draymond Raw. And mm. I guess my point is, it, it, it wasn't Raw. That that was a well-planned, scripted performance is what that was. Yeah. yeah. Speaking Wednesday for the first time since sustaining a concussion on September 29th, Miami quarterback Tua Tunga Viola said he remembers most of that night, but lost consciousness after a hit that sent him to the hospital. Tua said he doesn't remember what happened immediately after hitting his head on the ground and losing consciousness, but he does remember being driven to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center via ambulance, as well as his trip back to Miami with his teammates early the next morning. When they landed, he said it's good to be back in Tuscaloosa. And said, hey... I'm Jacoby Ellsbury now. Mm. Yeah. That's it on the news. Be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe. Go there and leave us a five-star rating. Always appreciate the five-star rating. Just go there and leave Can us one. Can they do one. something above five stars? No, it's only five. You can't You can't make it anymore. You can't? No, you can't. If they could, though, what would it be? It's infinite, man. All right. It's all about infinite, man. Robert. It is, and you know what, man? You know what? I, I also appreciate for my news heads. No, Scott. What is it? The positive vibes amongst the news heads, man. We're all about great vibes here. We are. Yeah. All right. Back to you, Mark. 
tonight, UCF Night Talk is live at Island Wind Company as uh, head coach Gus Malzahn will be with us. First half of the show, talk about the win over Temple, preview the matchup against East Carolina, and scheduled uh, to join us include defensive lineman Anthony Montalvo and tight end Alec Holler on uh, the program. Join us live at Island Wind Company by UCF. We'll listen uh, right here. UCF Saturday game against East Carolina begins at 7.30. We'll have pregame starting at 5.30. Back with Matt Stinchcomb of the SEC Network. More college football talk and our Count on a Bowl Time segment next. This is Countdown to Bowl Time on the Beat of Sports. Presented by Florida Citrus Sports. If you log on to FloridaCitrusSports.com, lots of details on all the upcoming events. The uh, Florida Blue Florida Classic coming up with Boone Cookman and Florida A&M. Ticket information uh, and all the events there and also bowl season uh, on the horizon uh, in the not-too-distant future. Second half of the college football season gets underway this weekend, seven weeks down, seven weeks uh, to go. So uh, get set for uh, bowl season. Earlier uh, today, Steve Spurrier was supposed to be out with Mike at 8.15 and uh, had ball coaches backed up a little bit. So Mike uh, talked to him at 8.30 and I, I let Mike talk to Coach Spurrier. They got a uh, long friendship, so easier for those guys to uh, talk. That interview is up at 96.9thegame.com uh, and Mike asked uh, Spurrier a lot of things. Uh, the Gators and their struggle. Uh, I'll let you go and listen to it. You can hear Spurrier talk about Florida's offense. And we played the clips yesterday when Spurrier was on Pat Dooley's uh, podcast out of Gainesville. We talked about Anthony Richardson and some of the things that Florida does on offense. And I think, like I said yesterday in hearing Spurrier today, Steve Spurrier, to me, is one of the great offensive minds in football, period. I mean, while it didn't work out as an NFL coach, I think Steve Spurrier, uh, from an offensive standpoint, forever changed college football. The uh, the fact that he brought a a, a passing philosophy to the SEC where that just wasn't something you saw, and I think his fingerprints are on a lot of college offenses today, just like a lot of other guys. You talk about what Josh Heupel runs, and is that part of the – you know, the Air Raid and Mike Leach and then what Art Browse said at Baylor and all different, you know, Gus Malzahn runs. There's a number of different styles, but I still think Spurrier and his passing game uh, was very different. But Spurrier is such a fan. Like, I'm listening to uh, the interview Pat Dooley did, and he talks to Spurrier every Monday, and then what Mike had this morning with Steve Spurrier. And I just... I come across thinking that's the fan that Steve Spurrier is. I mean, he loves the Gators. And when he says, well, you know, they could maybe run this play a little bit more, run that play a little bit more, I don't think, like I said yesterday, I don't think he's criticizing Billy Napier. Uh, I'm not quite sure he thinks Anthony Richardson is going to be one of the Gator greats at quarterback, but there's the fan in Steve Spurrier. And as Mike talked on his show and then, we talked the last couple of days about, and Mike's point was, you know, what's happened to the state of college football in Florida? Outside of UCF success since 2017, you know, the other major programs in the state um, have really struggled. And uh, why is that the case? And as my point was in discussing with Mike yesterday, I think those fan bases combined, they don't, 
like each other much, but they can't agree on some things. That the return to relevance has not happened as quick as they thought it would be, and they're learning that there's no guarantee that it will happen. And what is very difficult for fan bases that have experienced the highest level of success and in Florida, Florida State and Miami programs that have won national championships is that when you reach a level, and I've often said this even about UCF fans, that the 2017 and 2018 seasons were the two greatest seasons in the program's history and in some ways impacted the expectation of fans that you can never lose a game again. But right now for Florida, Florida State, Miami fans, it's like, well, we're going to get back to winning you know, these 11, 12 games a year and be in the hunt for conference championships and be in the hunt for uh, the playoff and all sorts of things like that. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting, and you're wondering, okay, is it this year? And then you lose interest because the minute that second loss happens, you're out of the conference race, you no longer feel as if, well, this can't be um, a good season. And like I believe, it's hard to sustain that. And that Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson uh, are part of a very small group that have been able to sustain something for a long period of time. And long may be more than five years and then to a decade. And there are not many schools that uh, can do that. Oklahoma went from a team that was in contention with the playoffs every single year to now being four and three. And some people wondering if they'll win enough games to be uh, bowl eligible. And when does that turn around and enter the transfer portal and enter just the battle now for talent that you can't tell somebody, oh, listen, it's fine. You have a new coach in a couple of years, you'll be back, you'll be winning 11, 12 games, and you'll be in the mix. And brand image can change quickly. I mean, Alabama, despite a loss against Tennessee, the Alabama brand isn't hurt by the one loss to Tennessee. Now, some in that fan base may freak out if they lose a second and a third game, but just by losing one game, they haven't lost anything to their brand. But brand value comes and goes. And we've seen that across the country in USC and Michigan and Tennessee at Texas and you just assume things come back and it doesn't happen as fast as it wants to come back. But I do think, I do think when we expand to 12 teams in the playoff, and there are a number of people that still don't like the idea of, wait, I'm going to let nine and three teams get in. Should they be competing for the national championship? And that's fine. People can have that debate. I do think it will change the view of fans clearly about what is a wasted season right now. Forget about three losses. Once you get that second loss, for the most part, you're out. We've had examples of two-loss teams that have been in the hunt for uh, the playoff, and we've had a two-loss team with the national championship. But um, when we get to 12, which is why I do like the model, you will have far more teams and their fan bases engaged longer into the season. And somebody with three losses is going to make a playoff. They're going to get one of the at-large bids. And maybe someday somebody with four losses is going to get in because their schedule will warrant consideration. And that will be a significant change to what we've now gone through. So, you know, 
you could get off to a one and two start and then get on a roll and finish nine and three and win some big games and then say, wait a minute, we got a chance to get one of those at large spots to make the playoff. That's not the case now. And because we've made this only four teams, that's played the trickle down of, well, we got two losses or three losses, our season's done. You'll keep more teams and their fan bases relevant longer into the season because of what will be those six at-large spots. Yeah, but then we'll debate, you know, is that big of a difference of who the 13th, 14th, and 15th? Who cares? Well, I don't like that. Now we're getting to average and so forth. We will adapt. And, yeah, we'll argue that this 8-4 and four team deserves it over that 9-3 and three team or 9-3 and three team gets over 10-2 and two te- That'll be the next wave of debate that we have. But that will keep fan bases engaged. You might lose two conference games early and still find yourself in position by the time we get to game 11 and 12. Wait a minute. We might still be in the mix here. We're, you know, we're 8 and 2 and uh we're 5 and 2 in our league with two big conference games left and I think we're going to be in the mix. That wouldn't happen now. You'd be out. And a lot of you then disengage your interest in a season. That is one of the great things, and and that's happened. And sometimes I don't, I don't like, but I know why. The expanded playoff, like you just saw in baseball, some teams at one hundred games that didn't advance. But when they expanded baseball playoffs, expanded the NFL uh, playoffs and the NBA, it gave more fan bases a reason to stay engaged. Yeah, but we watered it down to the NBA. Two thirds of the team make the playoffs. You know what? We're fine. The NBA still crowned a champion that no one argued at the end of the season. I don't know if the day will come that a 10th seed goes on to win the championship, and if we do, I guess it'll be fun to watch that process play itself out, but it absolutely kept more fan bases engaged. That's better for business. It sold tickets. It kept TV ratings there, and that's the benefit of that, and that will happen in college football. That's one of many reasons, not just the maybe half billion dollars that it's worth, uh, to expand to 12, but you will have more fan bases engaged. And suddenly, 9-3, and 8-4 and four may not be viewed as such an awful season if it means, wait, at 9-3 and three, I might make the playoffs. That becomes far more interesting to your fan base than, eh, what do I care about what happens in uh, November? So, by the way, the um, the college football playoff board is another meeting next week to try to make progress on getting the playoff for the 24 season that's the next step in uh their meetings they've approved an expanded playoff. the question is can they get it done earlier than 2026 and their next meeting is to try to lay out some of the challenges to do it in 24 and there is a push by the chair of that committee which is the president of mississippi state uh to make it happen in time for the 2024 season to have an expanded playoff then. I have a dumb question. Yeah? Why is it in college basketball and in the NCAA tournament we're okay with teams making runs that we didn't expect? But it seems like in college football, no, 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 no. We don't want to see that at all. Uh, now, are you talking about like the Power Five team that got in at seventeen and thirteen, and then they're in the regional final, and we're okay with that? 
Yeah. Because I think... Like Cinderella stories. Well, but I don't know. Well, Cinderella would be like a mid-major smaller conference. But, okay, but that that won't happen in the college football playoff. But no. but it's like if you have 12 teams right. in the college football playoff and some teams... But we won't be bothered by that by the time we get to the 5th, ninth, and 12th year. Yeah. In, in, in college basketball, when they expanded the field, we've accepted it, that there are uh, ninth or 10th seeds that come from Power 5 leagues that get on a run that get to the second weekend and might even get to the final four because that's been the format for years. And by the time we get to year four, five, six of a 12-team playoff, people won't be bothered if a 9-3 and three team makes the playoffs. Just like we're not bothered in the NFL now with 17 games if a 9-8 and eight team gets in. Again, the Giants were a wild-card team. People didn't freak out when they won the Super Bowl because the, 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 the model had been in place and will adapt to... The model in college football as well. Like you remember when the NCAA tournament went from four teams to eight teams? Were you were you outraged back then? Being sarcastic. I do remember when it went to forty eight and people lost their mind, and then to sixty four, and then to sixty eight. Was it forty eight? Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we come back a history lesson. We'll turn the clock back fifty years. Next. <laughs> Coming up Monday, the Orlando Touchdown Club, another meeting of the Chapman with Dubstred. Uh, he's back. He's been a guest speaker before and uh, was great. And look forward to having him back. Matt Sintrigan, College Football Hall of Famer and uh, part of uh, SEC Network and ESPN's College Football Coverage. Again, you can learn more by going to OrlandoTDClub.com and join us on Mondays. Matt, good morning. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. So excited about this upcoming weekend's games. Uh, and rightfully so, but I got to take you back to last week's game as you watched Alabama and Tennessee. What surprised you the most on both sides from Tennessee standpoint to move the ball? And then what's with Alabama's defense right now? Well, yeah, you know, one obviously hinges off the other. I was really surprised at the ability to protect Hendon Hooker and how well Tennessee held up in protection versus an Alabama pass rush that should be probably the most formidable one we've seen in many, many years. I mean, just a wealth of riches from a a pass rush ability standpoint along their defensive front. They didn't get to Hendon Hooker very often, and when they did, he was able to escape or just slide two or three steps up or to the right or left in the pocket, show great poise. That was what I think was the difference in the game. Obviously, coverage was uh, was not dialed in. There was a couple of busts, clearly, and then just flat-out losses, um, especially with Jalen Hyatt as the number three receiver. Um, so they really did an excellent job of, of giving Hendon Hooker the opportunity to operate that offense cleanly. They've done it, really, most of the season. And... I thought that might have changed this past Saturday versus an Alabama defense that can affect the passer at a higher rate than any other defense in the conference. That just wasn't the case on Saturday. That, to me, was probably the most glaring difference, or at least anomaly, from what I anticipated seeing on Saturday. Matt, Josh was in the league at Missouri before he came down here at UCF and now the head coach at Tennessee. What is unique about that offense? And we've certainly seen offenses open up over the years in college football, but the thought always is, hey, in the SEC, it's hard to do that because of speed on defense. 
What is it that Josh does that has it become as successful even now in the SEC? Well, you know, I think that, you know the key to it has been Hendon Hooker and his play, um, and Josh was able to leverage, obviously, a, a really a good quarterback, although not a dual threat quarterback at Missouri, uh, and Drew Locke, and then now, of course, finds himself with a Hendon Hooker type talent, uh, true dual threat, not dissimilar to ones that he's had in the past at other stops. He spreads you out. And you look at the wide receiver splits and. and there's almost always at least one of them that's aligned outside the numbers. Limits you from a, a route standpoint. I mean, there's only so many routes you can run uh, from that uh, alignment. However, it also requires a defender to be that wide. There is no fringe defender, really, in this uh, versus this offense. You can't afford to be because the, the wide receiver splits are so wide and the tempo, of course, where they do an excellent job of rattling off plays. But what's overlooked, I think, is the run game in his offense. And when you take that with a, with a quarterback like Hendon Hooker, where with one back in the backfield, you always have two backs in the backfield. And if you have, quote, unquote, empty, no running backs, as long as Hendon Hooker's the quarterback, um, that's never really the case. The threat of the run, and, and that would include even between the tackle runs, is always there. He's been really, really creative in uh, how they get into and out of their run concepts. Even added a wrinkle this past Saturday versus Alabama where they run a lot of divide or split zone where they'll motion a tight end um, at the snap of the ball opposite the direction that the offensive line is blocking. And so because of that, they, they built in a counter play that looks a lot like the split zone but isn't. Uh, and scored a touchdown with it. So um, he's really creative. He takes things that concepts that have been around forever and gets there in different ways. But formationally, it really stretches the defense sideline to sideline because of where their wide receivers often align. Let me ask you about Georgia. Uh, the schedule's what it is. They absolutely destroyed Oregon, who's bounced back since then and really haven't been challenged other than the game. At Missouri, we'll get a better idea. Florida, Tennessee, maybe Mississippi State will be ranked, maybe not when they get them. And then uh, Kentucky. Uh, what can you tell me about the first seven games of what has been somewhat easy for Georgia, except that uh, Missouri game? But what do you make of the dogs start this year? Yeah, I will say it's been kind of um, it's kind of been up and down. And then it's, it's you know you say that, and of course you know one of the quote unquote down games was a game versus Kent State where they never punted. Um, but it wasn't as dominant as what we saw in the first three weeks. You know, Oregon was a complete and total dismantling uh, of the Ducks in the opener. First-year head coach, new quarterback, you know, that might be attributable to those uh, elements of just being new, new to the, the personnel and the game environment, of course, new to the role as a head coach. Uh, and as you mentioned, Oregon, you know, looks pretty strong in the Pac-12 for, for whatever that's worth. Um, and Sanford uh, is an FCS opponent. You can't take much from that. And then uh, they demolish South Carolina. But the, the Kent State and Missouri performances are curious um, because some of it was self-inflicted and others of it, frankly, was uh, issues along the line of scrimmage and specifically the offensive front that through the first couple of weeks might have been masked by really good skill position play and the scoreboard. You know, they just got on top of teams. Um, and we're able to kind of snowball from there. 
in Kent State and even at much to a greater extent versus Missouri, the offensive front did not play very aggressively, didn't look good from a physical nature standpoint, and they did an excellent job of bouncing back uh, versus Auburn to where they could kind of return to form. But what has continued to kind of be absent is the explosive playmaking and specifically in the passing game. Although they did a much better job uh, last week versus Vanderbilt, um, that was an opportunity to be had. Uh, there was not a ton of resistance. That secondary is not especially strong, especially at corner. Uh, so you do wonder, um, does that is that Georgia offense um, capable of returning to form where they scored touchdowns on the first seven possessions versus Oregon? I think so. Part of it's been an absence at wide receiver with A.D. Mitchell. So it's a team that's playing well, but you have to kind of asterisk that a little bit relative to what? You know, Tennessee's been tested. They pass that test versus uh, Alabama. They've had a couple of near misses of their own. Um, so it'll be an interesting game first week in November uh, versus Tennessee, which has proven to be perhaps the proving ground in the SEC East, if not the entire conference. Matt Sims comes with us. He'll be the guest speaker of the Orlando Touchdown Club coming up on Monday. Go to OrlandoTDClub.com to get information. You can join us not just for Monday, but the rest of the year. Uh, Kirby was asked. He gave the right answer because it was a big deal before the season. Uh, you played in Florida, Georgia, and Jacksonville. He made the comment about why he wouldn't mind seeing it become home and home. When somebody says to you, as someone who played in that game in Jacksonville, uh, would you like to see it go home and home or stay in Jacksonville? Yeah, I would say that you know, the Jacksonville part is novel, um, but it's not a sacred cow to me. I mean, there is no um, – if it went home and home, it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, I think it would be a lot of fun for those two fan bases to experience the respective venues. And I'm saying this as a guy who, who did get to play at home versus Florida my freshman year. They were, uh, I guess, renovating – Right. Then known as, uh, I guess, Gator Bowl for the Jaguars. So, you know, I did not play in the, uh, the 94 game where Georgia visited Florida. I think those fan bases, you know, the Swamp is a, a really difficult place to play. It's a fun place to play. The fan base is into it. Um, it's, a, it's one of the more uh, electric environments in college football. Same can be said. Uh, for Sanford Stadium now, and neither one of those fan bases has an idea of what what that's like for their own team uh, to play in the opposite uh, when there's, uh, I think, a a more peer-like relationship. At the time when it was played, Florida was dominant. Uh, Those games were not competitive. Um, That hasn't necessarily uh, been the case the past couple of years. It would be a lot more fun to see it that way. So Jacksonville is a great city. I think if they were to go to home, home and away, and then neutral site in Jacksonville, you know, every three years, I think uh, that would be uh, an interesting way to to accomplish uh, maybe the best of, of both worlds. Let me I don't know what the economics are and all that other stuff, so I'm sure that the folks in Jacksonville feel pretty strongly otherwise. Let me end with this. Um, is the college football world outside of the South prepared for the debate of three SEC teams in the playoff at the end of the year? <laughs> they, they are not. I can say that without qualification. Uh, um, I, I will say this. I, that's probably incorrect. They're probably uh, abundantly prepared for that, uh, that argument and are, I'm sure, building exhibits and cases now against it. 
Uh, I don't know that we get there, uh, especially when we know that we're on the cusp of the expansion uh, and the reasons behind that expansion. There's been a concentration of uh, interest uh, in the college football playoff because of the concentration of participants in the college football playoff. Look, there's there's no way to dilute um, the quality of, of play and where that has chiefly resided uh, in the past couple of years. Uh, it's the SEC and, and one contributor from the ACC, but regardless, the southeastern part of the United States, every once in a while in Notre Dame. So, you know, the diversification geographically makes sense. I'd be shocked if we saw three teams from the same conference, one that everyone is probably growing exhausted of, uh, get into the college football playoff. There's other strong candidates. There may not be undefeateds, um, but I think that there's uh, very little opportunity or appetite, really, to have three teams from the same conference in the playoffs. Matt Sinchkin again is going to be on Monday. The Orlando Touchdown Club Chapman with Dubstrad. Learn more about the schedule on Monday and the rest of the season. Go to OrlandoTDClub.com. Matt, enjoy the weekend. Travel safe. We'll see you on Monday. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. I look forward to it. See you soon, man. Matt Sinchkin, SEC Network, uh, ESPN, a college football Hall of Famer that played for both the Bucks and the then Oakland Raiders for John Gruden, the years he played in the NFL, both places. The only coach oh, wow. he played for. Yeah. Back to wrap up the Thursday show next. Time for the latest news, gossip, trends, and off-the-wall stories. Trends. Ooh. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So I'm the idiot that clicks on the uh, fight in the streets outside of Petco Park between Padre fans and a Philly fan. Okay. It's four-on-one. Mm-hmm. And the guy shooting the video... Mm-hmm. Maybe I should praise it. Scott, he goes all into the middle of the action before yeah. he then zooms out. Okay. Like, oh, look what's going on. Let me take you inside the fight, mm-hmm. holding his point, then kind of backs off like, yo, dog, what happened right there? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and I clicked it on. What did it say about me? You mean you also clicked on and watched the trailer for Terrifier 2. Well, only because you were teasing it yesterday. And, and you immediately down. regret what was that, that clown, Art the clown. Oh God! Oh God! Whew. Brutal, brutal. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. Miss any of our interviews? Yeah, a lot of people on today. Rini Golia previewing the UCF football game. Uh, Cam Meller's weekly football visit from Pro Football Network. Matt Stinchcomb, the College Football Hall of Famer, that was on. He told me he's a newshead. Who? Matt. Yeah going to question that one. What do you mean? Yeah. We're going to come back tomorrow for a Friday show. Don't forget UCF uh, Night Talk tonight, 7 o'clock Island Wind Company out by UCF. Matt, uh, rather, uh, Gus Malzahn and a couple of night players. And Come on out and join us. Otherwise, listen right here. See you tomorrow for a Friday show. Scott produced. I'm Mark Daniels, the Beat of Sports.